This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. He received his Ph.D. in isotope geochemistry from the University of Texas in Austin. Dr. Borg. And joining him today is uh, Tom Scheffler. He's a physics and um, astronomy teacher at Granada High here in Livermore. And he got his undergraduate degree from Western Michigan University and then got a master's from UC Berkeley in astronomy and astrophysics. And without further ado, let's get started. Thank you very much for coming out on an early Saturday morning. It's a, a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, as Joanne said, my name is Lars Borg. I work at Lawrence Livermore National Lab. What you guys probably don't know about me is I grew up in Livermore. I went to uh, East Avenue when it was an elementary school. I went to Almond when it was also an elementary school. I went to East Avenue when it was a middle school, and I graduated from Livermore High. Uh, I also went to undergraduate at Berkeley. So uh, I did all these things locally before I started to go to Texas, where I worked at NASA for a while, then at the University of New Mexico, where I taught, and finally I came to the lab about 10, 15 years ago, something like that. So I'm the local kid. <laughs> so. Um, Fifty years ago today, the Apollo program was raging. Apollo 11 and Apollo 12 had already returned astronauts from the moon. Geologists and geochemists from all over the world were looking at those rocks, and they were making discoveries and insights about the origins and evolution of the Earth and the moon that were changing the very foundations of the field. And in celebration of this tremendous achievement of the American people and, and people worldwide, I'm going to talk to you about the origin and evolution of the moon as we currently see it today. And this is going to be predicated on a lot of work that I've done at Lawrence Livermore National Lab with my group over the last 10 or 15 years. But before I go there, what I'd like to do is try and put Apollo into perspective a little bit. This was the largest science and exploration endeavor ever undertaken by the human species. It was unparalleled. At its height, it was using roughly 1% of the entire gross national product of the United States. So this was something way beyond what NASA is today, way beyond anything that we've done as far as a science-directed objective. And it changed the world we live in. The technology and the, the thinking, the human species was changed as a result of this. Obvious things are, for example, things like computers and cell phones and things, which were technological derivatives of things that were first gestated in the Apollo program and its predecessors, Mercury and Gemini. But it also changed the way we think about things. It engendered an entire group of people to look at the problems that we face as a species and realize that we have a solution to some of these, and that's through technology and science and education. And that's what emboldened people like myself 
to go into these fields and other people's other people to invent computers and do these sorts of things. But it also changed the way we look at ourselves in the broader cosmos. And this slide to the left is an illustrative of that. This is a photograph taken by uh, crew member Bill Anders, who was on the Apollo 11 command module as it orbited the moon before the landings. And he took this photograph looking back at the Earth. And what it did was it put the human experience into a broader perspective. Looking at this little bubble of life-sustaining Earth in this vast expanse of space from with a foreground of this incredibly hostile moon. And what he said in this, I've quoted it up on the left, it says, we came all this way to explore the moon, and the most important thing that we discovered was the Earth. And that's very true from the philosophical perspective, but it's also true from the geological perspective as well. Because by looking at the geology of the moon, we gained insights into how the Earth formed. The Earth is a giant engine that continually builds itself and destroys itself through weathering processes and recycling that takes crustal rocks and puts them into the mantle. As a result, if we want to understand the earliest history of the Earth, we can't find any record of it on the Earth. So where do we go? We go to the moon. And so this is what I'm going to talk to you about today. One of the fundamental questions that came out of this exploration was, and goals of this exploration was to understand when did the Earth and the moon form? And this has been a problem that we've been working on for 50 years. And I think we've found the actual answer to this in the last few years, and I'm going to present that to you today. So the general outline of this talk is going to go something like this. I'm going to begin by describing the hypothesis that we've developed for the origin and evolution of the moon. This is based on the analysis of samples that have been returned from the Apollo program almost exclusively based on these samples. There have been other information gained from looking at remote sensing data and theoretical data, but the vast majority of the story that I'm going to present to you today is based on the analysis of the samples that were returned by these six landed Apollo missions. The hypothesis that is developed has a built-in test, and that test is based on determining the ages of the rocks. If we can measure the ages of these rocks, it can test this hypothesis for the origin of the moon, and it can also tell us the age of the moon. The problem is, is that the measured data, the historical measured data that have been completed over the last 50 years, really don't support the hypothesis. And so this is very problematic because it might mean that the chronology that we've determined on these rocks is incorrect because they're difficult measurements, or alternatively, it might mean that the bloody model that we've come up with after 50 years is dead wrong. So we're going to talk about the chronology of rocks and to introduce you to the way rocks are, are dated, Tom Scheffler is going to give some demonstrations to illustrate how natural radioactive decay can be used as a way to obtain ages on actual samples. And then finally what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you the data that's been completed by my group that I think answers this question. So let me begin by giving you a Geology 101 lesson. This is uh, going to be a 
version of the origin and evolution of the moon as it might be presented at a freshman undergraduate geology class, minus the terminology that is only specific to cosmochemists who are a strange group anyway. <laughs> so the first step in the origin and evolution of the moon is depicted here. What we think happens is that there was a giant impact of a body that we think is roughly the size of Mars with a proto-Earth that was probably somewhat bigger than the Earth is today. The need for this is based on the chemical composition difference between the Earth and the Moon, as well as the physical properties of the Earth and Moon today, specifically something known as angular momentum. This giant impact was incredibly violent. The planets were hit with such velocities that the impactor was completely destroyed and the Earth was lucky to stay intact. What happened during this impact was, of course, there was a breaking of material, debris was shot into space, much of the rock was turned into gas and plasma, that gas and some of the rock escaped, and, it, and some of it was bound around the Earth in a gravitational orbit depicted in this illustration here. This debris was captured by the, by the gravity. It was orbiting the Earth at the same time. It's very hot. Gases are not bound by gravitational forces nearly as strongly as solids. And they have more kinetic energy, and so they're escaping. So what's happening is we're generating a debris ring of, of rock devoid of volatile elements. So the next thing that happened is this debris starts being attracted to itself uh, by gravity and forming a bulk planet, which was to become the moon. Turns out if you have gravity that is attracting materials together, it gets very warm. As it heats up, it starts melting. So what happened at some point early in the history of the moon, as it was agglomerating or accreting is the, is the technical term for that, it started to melt. We don't know how much of it melted. The general idea right now is that the entire body was probably mostly molten. So at some point, right after the giant impact, the debris is gone, the gas is left, we've got a molten body orbiting the Earth. The Earth is also probably going to be fairly molten too, probably not completely melted. So Thermodynamics tells us that things that are hot get cold, particularly if they're in space. And so this body then starts to solidify. And it solidifies into the moon that we've seen today. And so this initial molten body, which we term the magma ocean, is solidifies fairly early in the history of the solar system. And the question that we're trying to address is, when did this solidification occur? This is a geologically datable event, and this will tell us when this whole sequence of things occurred. So this is a movie showing what we think happened. There was a giant impact forming a variety of debris. The debris was, much of it was ejected out of the gravitational field of the Earth. Some of it was maintained uh, within, gravitational, within the gravitational field, forming debris. The debris later accretes to form the moon. That generates a significant amount of heat. 
which melts the moon, then the moon solidifies, forming what we see today as the, uh, as the moon as we basically observe it. There also was a period of heavy impacts that occurred late in solar system history. I'm not discussing that in the context of, of this particular presentation. Okay, so in the next few slides, what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk to you about how the moon solidified. And this is important because the solidification of the moon produces the rocks that we're able to look at and date today. So if we can date these rocks that formed as a result of primordial solidification of the moon, we can get some sense of when it solidified. So to understand this, we have to look at terrestrial analogs. That's the way geology largely works, is by comparing things. So you look at the evolution of a body, say uh, uh, an intrusive body like something intruded into the crust like the Sierra Nevada, and it gives you insights into the processes of solidification that might be applicable to something like a magma ocean on the moon. This is a picture that shows one of the closest terrestrial analogs to solidification of a magma ocean. On the left is a lava lake from Hawaii. This is a lake that's produced when molten lava is erupted onto the surface and pools. And then, of course, it cools and it solidifies. That solidification that occurs can be modeled and understood both in the laboratory and by physical observation of looking at these materials, and it can be used as a basis for understanding what might have happened if a molten body the size of a planet, like the moon, solidified. So in the next couple of slides, I'm going to show you this pie-shaped diagram. Imagine this as a, a pie-shaped cross-section through a planet. So the entire planet would be one and a half times the size of the stage. We're just looking at the interior, and the radius of the planet goes from the point of the triangle to the surface. So the body is initially molten. It starts to cool. The first thing that solidifies is going to be the thing that transitions from liquid to metal, at, liquid to solid, at the highest temperature. And that turns out to be metal. So the first thing that solidifies is iron and nickel, which form a core. The core of the moon is roughly about 300 kilometers. It's very, very small. In fact, until about five years ago, we weren't even sure that the moon had a core. As this metal is subtracted out of the liquid, the liquid becomes depleted in those components that go into the core. So the liquid becomes depleted in iron and nickel. The other elements that don't go into the core become progressively enriched. So the rest of the material are something we call silicates, which are characterized by high abundances of SiO2. But there's a variety of other elements that follow that, including titanium, aluminum, magnesium, calcium, so on, etc. So imagine you have a liquid body of liquid silicate, so sort of like liquid glass, below a solid metal core, above a solid metal core. So this liquid continues to solidify. The next thing that, that crystallizes out of this magma is, is a mineral called olivine. If you go to Hawaii and you pick up a rock there, you'll see a bunch of little green minerals. They're sort of olive green. That's olivine. You've probably all seen it, not knowing what it is. Maybe some of you do. 
but it is a material that is rich in magnesium and silica. It takes up about 50% of that silica molten liquid uh, of the magma ocean. So that liquid now becomes depleted in magnesium, and it lowers its temperature. So another mineral starts to crystallize. In this case, it's a mineral called orthopyroxene, which you've probably also seen. It's also in Hawaii. It's a little harder to find. It's sort of a honey brown kind of color. Uh, It's pictured here. It's also a magnesium silicate. The next mineral that crystallizes is called plagioclase. Plagioclase is something that you see all over the place in the Sierra Nevada. If you grab a rock, a granitic rock, the white mineral in there is plagioclase. It has uh, calcium and aluminum in it. But this material is fairly light. It's less dense than the liquid it crystallizes from. So as it solidifies, instead of sinking like the olivine orthopyroxene, it rises to the surface. And it forms a early, what we call a primordial crust of the moon. And if you go and look at the moon today and you see white spots... That's what you're looking at. You're looking at that plagioclase-rich material. Crystallization continues. The next mineral to crystallize is clinopyroxene. This is a magnesium-calcium-bearing mineral. Something strange is starting to happen here, though. On all of these minerals, I've put the density. So the olivine has a density of about 3.3, as does the, the orthopyroxene. The plagioclase rises to the top. It has a density of 2.7. Everything is in harmony in terms of of density and and gravitational stratification. But if you look at the clinopyroxene, it has a density of about 3.7. And yet, it's thought to crystallize relatively high in the magma ocean. So we're starting to build in a density and stability here into this magma ocean. The next thing that crystallizes is ilmenite. It's an iron-titanium oxide, and the gravitational instability gets even worse in this case because this is really dense stuff. It is a density of about 4.5, and it's at the very top. And so we've got a series of minerals, idealized here, that are in in a pile in which they're gravitationally unstable. Now, we've also got a little bit of liquid that hasn't gone into any minerals, and it remains, and geochemists, being geochemists, call it creep, K-R-E-E-P, and that's because it contains potassium, which is on the periodic table, the letter K. It has rare earth elements, the things that make Prius's work, R-E-E's, and it has phosphorus in it. So, being the imaginative fellows that my colleagues are, they came up with the name creep. But basically, this is the stuff that doesn't go into olivine or pyroxene or plagioclase or ilmenite. It has all the elements that aren't in the previously formed minerals. So, at the end of this crystallization of the magma ocean, this is something... This is the general outline of what we think the moon might have looked like. It had a metallic core. The core is very relatively small. It has a mantle composed of a variety of minerals, mostly magnesium silicates, uh, including olivine, pyroxenes, also is interspersed with ilmenite, and it has 
a, a primary crust that's dominated by the mineral plagioclase because it's fairly buoyant. And in between, there's a bunch of stuff that's enriched in a whole bunch of elements that are rather obscure but really important to cosmochemists that is called creep. And as I said before, this is very unhappy because it's gravitationally unstable. So what happens is everything starts mixing around. So to give you an analogy of what this might be like, imagine building a house of cards and then trying to place a basketball on top of it. What's going to happen is the house of cards are going to go all over the place and the basketball is going to go down. Well, the same basic thing happens here. The ilmenite is the basketball, so is the clinopyroxene. It drives to the bottom. It displaces lighter minerals that are forced to the top. And so this entire mantle mixes around. The plagioclase stays up top because it's more buoyant than everything. The creep, because it also has radioactive elements, is hot. It stays at the top. The core has a density of about nine, so it's uninvolved. It doesn't care. And everything else is mixed up. So at the end of this primary differentiation of the moon, we have a primary crust, a mixed mantle of material, and a metallic core. And this process is called overturn. So the geology of the moon isn't, isn't finished here. There's still things that happen. This involves secondary geologic processes that typically aren't affiliated with the primary crystallization and solidification of the body. And in this case, what happens is we have interjection of molten material into that primary crust. And this is termed a secondary crust. It's a group of rocks that are sometimes called the magnesium suite. But these rocks are thought to be significantly younger or somewhat younger than the rocks that they're intruded into. You can't intrude into something if you're older than it because it wouldn't exist. So it's just a, in geologic terms, it's a stratigraphy. The primary crust should be older. The secondary crust should be younger. <clears throat> Again, geology continues to occur. So after these rocks are intruded into the primary crust, a series of basalt flows are erupted onto the surface of the moon. So if you're looking at the moon today, it might look something similar to what you see here. That plagioclase-rich material is represented by this white stuff. And the dark material are those basalts that represent mantle melts intruded into large impact basins, and they're represented by these dark areas uh, in the center of the, of the diagram. Galileo, looking at this in the 17th century, called these the mare, thinking they might be, have some relationship to the ocean. <clears throat> okay, so this model that I just presented is based on the geochemistry and mineralogy of rocks that have been collected primarily from the Apollo missions. There are a few lunar meteorites that have been collected, but the vast majority of what I just presented is based on the analysis of rocks determined or collected from these missions. There were six Apollo missions that flew from 1969 to 1972, Apollo 11 through 17. They returned approximately 738 pounds of rock. 
That rock has been continually curated at the Johnson Space Center since 1969. And this is the basis, and and I should add that those rocks have been studied continuously for the last 50 years. By dating the appropriate rocks, we ought to be able to test the model that I just presented. And one of the problems is, is that when we do that, the, the chronology does not support the model. And this is going to be the basis of, of much of, of what we're going to talk about today. Before I do that, I want to demonstrate exactly what it looks like to get a rock from the moon. So this is a panoramic composite image from the Apollo 16 landing, landing site. So this, this lander landed was the one mission that landed in the highlands. So this is one of the plagioclase-rich areas. This image is taken from the lander with the sun in the background showing the shadow. If you look at the center of the diagram, there is a uh, note with a little box around it that says sample 60025. This is actually one of the most famous samples from the moon. Um, By way of an aside, you can tell where individual rocks are from by looking at their numbers. So all Apollo samples have a six-digit number. The first number represents the mission So six means this is from Apollo 16. The second number represents the station from which it was collected. The landing sites where the LEMs were by by convention station zero. So you know that this rock was taken from a site that was right near where the lander came down. You can see it in situ or in place uh, there. If you look at the blow up, it's over there. You can see a, a tire track of the rover where it almost got run over. Uh, to put this in, in, in uh, perspective, it's probably a little bit bigger than the size of a golf ball. Okay, so Tom's going to help me uh, show you some of the principles behind how to date rocks, and then we'll go on and show how age dating of rocks can be used to address some of these, these issues regarding the origin and evolution of the moon. So to understand how do we look at a rock and tell how old it is, uh, we want to understand how certain materials can be radioactive. What does it mean to be radioactive? Well, to to talk about radioactivity, we have to do a little bit of uh, basic chemistry. So all all chemicals are made up of of atoms. An atom has a nucleus at the center. The nucleus contains particles called protons that are positively charged neutrons that are neutrally charged, and then this nucleus is surrounded by a cloud of negatively charged electrons. What element you have is determined by how many protons you have. If you have one proton, you have hydrogen. If you have two protons, you have helium. If you have 42 protons, you've got molybdenum, etc. So for example, however, you can have more than one kind of helium. Most helium, the kind of Helium that is in party balloons or makes your voice sound funny, uh, most of that helium has two neutrons. But you can have helium with only one neutron, and it's still helium because it still has the two protons. The fact that you can have different types of atoms with the same number of protons but different number of neutrons, this is what we call isotopes. Well, it turns out that certain isotopes of certain 
elements are radioactively unstable. One of the most uh, commonly known ones is an uh, isotope of carbon. Now, carbon is an, an atom that has six protons, and most carbon atoms also have six neutrons. But a rare type of carbon, a rare isotope of carbon called carbon-14 has eight protons. It has a couple extra neutrons. We call it carbon-14 because it has a total of six particles in the nucleus. And it turns out that this particular isotope of carbon is not stable. At some point, every carbon-14 nucleus will undergo a decay. We call the particle that is ejected the radiation particle. In this case, it's a beta particle. And it results in a, uh, what do we call the daughter nucleus. In this case, it happens to be nitrogen. Now, if I have an individual carbon-14 uh, atom, I have absolutely no idea when it's going to decay. Radioactivity is spontaneous and it is random. But I, if I have a large sample of them, I can study it, and people who have studied carbon have realized that the probability of a given carbon-14 decaying is about 50% probability to decay if you give it 5,730 years. So we call that the half-life of the carbon. So if I start with uh, a million carbon-14 atoms, by, and I wait nearly 6,000 years, I don't know which 500,000 are going to decay, but by the end of that, what we call half-life, we can be pretty sure that I'm going to be left with half a million. So we're going to demonstrate uh, a half-life decay, and you all are going to help me. So you were given a coin when you came in this morning. So everybody go ahead and, and get out this coin, and also stand up, stretch. Get out of your seats. Then you're back. So congratulations. All of you are now unstable atoms. <laughs> now, uh, we're in a moment going to experience one half-life. And sir, I don't know you. I don't know how unstable you are or not. I don't know if you're going to decay or not. But if there's, say, about 400 of you, what we're going to do is we're going to flip our coins. And if your coin lands science on Saturday up, you're going to decay. So I don't know who's going to decay. There's about 400 of us in here. I can be fairly certain that 200 people are about to sit down. So let's all experience a half-life, flip our coins. And if it says science on Saturday, congratulations. You have decayed. You may now sit down and enjoy stability. So we are now left with, uh, we've just experienced one half-life. So half of you have decayed, half of you are not. So I think enough time has elapsed. We're going to experience this again. So everybody flip your coin again. And I don't know which half of you just sat down, but I can estimate about 100 of you just sat down again. If we do this one more time, if there's 100 of you standing, I'm going to expect about 50 of you to, to sit down. Let's do it one more time. So every time a half-life elapses, you lose half of, of what was left. 
So even though, so everybody's still standing, you've survived three half-lives. So some of you are going to survive a fourth. So let's say somebody knew that we were going to do this activity, and, but they were late getting here to the Bankhead Theater, and they walked in right now, and they see a handful of people still standing, they would say to themselves, shoot, I missed a demo. I can tell the demo has already happened. Time has elapsed. That's what, what uh, geologists can do. We can look at a sample, and we can say, oh, there's not many radioactive isotopes left. We must, this must have uh, undergone many half-lives. So I mentioned for carbon, the half-life is 5,730 years. So if you start with a certain amount of, of uh, carbon-14, after 5,730 uh, years, you're left with half of it. After two half-lives, you're left with half of half of it, or a fourth of it. After three half-lives, you're left with half of a half of a half, or an eighth of what you started with, etc. So we can look at materials and find the ratio of how many carbon-14s do we have to what we think we started with, and that tells us how old that material is. Now note, with carbon-14, the half-life is about 6,000 years. Once you get past more than somewhere between 5 to 10 half-lives, you have lost so much of the radioactive isotopes that you've started with that it starts to lose its power to, to tell you the age of something. So carbon, radiocarbon dating is pretty good for up to about 30,000 years. So if you find some, some pottery or cloth in uh, an archaeological dig, then it could be useful for dating that. But if you want to date something as old as the Earth and the Moon, you're going to need an isotope with a much longer half-life than what carbon can provide. Uh, fortunately, there are other things other than carbon that undergo radioactive decay. For example, uranium. Let me come around here. So this is a Geiger counter. This is a device that detects the actual radiation from decay. So I'm going to start with these bananas over here. So you might hear the occasional click. And that's because potassium, one of the things that makes bananas nutritious, is also radioactive. So how many of you had bananas for breakfast this morning? Well, please do not worry. You are neither going to explode from radiation nor are you going to turn into the Incredible Hulk. Uh, the amount of radiation from a banana is pretty negligible. The amount of radiation, however, for something like uranium which was used in the, the paint which made this uh, cup that was made in the 1930s is pretty significant. So this is something from a brand called Fiestaware, and we're reading the incredible amount of uh, radiation from the uranium that's in that paint. Would anybody like a spot of tea? <laughs> so Dr. Borg is going to tell us about another radio, uh, radioactive isotope that he has used to... Uh, determine the date of uh, samples from the moon. Thanks. Yeah, so uh, as Tom showed you, there are elements like uranium that decay relatively quickly. There are also elements 
that are relevant for dating very old things. So you need very long half-lives. So uranium is one of the systems that can be used because there are some very long decay products. But the one that we use primarily is the samarium-neodymium system. These are rare earth elements. Samarium, abbreviated SM, neodymium, abbreviated ND, has a half-life of 106 billion years. So to put that in perspective, we think the solar system is 4.567 billion years old. So this is roughly 18 times longer than the age of the solar system. So samarium is present everywhere, but it's decaying at such a low rate, you couldn't detect it on a Geiger counter. It's even worse than potassium in that regard. So this is a slide that I've constructed to sort of show you how you date a rock using this system. So samarium-147 is the daughter product. It decays to neodymium-143, uh, ha- which has a half-life, again, as I said, 106 billion years. The way we date a rock is you start off with the rock, you break it into little bits, and you separate all the constituent minerals that are in it. So you separate out element or minerals like plagioclase and olivine and pyroxene into little piles. And this is done excruciating pain by crushing the rock and moving minerals that are roughly the diameter of five or ten human hairs into little piles. And these piles have to be actually big piles in order to measure the thing with enough precision because there's not much of the daughter product produced because the system has a really long half-life. So if you look at the upper left, that's a sort of a cartoon illustration of a, uh, of a hypothetical rock. The white is the plagioclase, the red is the olivine, the green and the yellow are, are the pyroxenes. You've separated those things out. And then what you do is you analyze them and you determine the neodymium and samarium isotopic compositions of these materials. And you plot them on this plot on the left, which is called an isochron diagram. So... For the sake of argument, imagine that you have a rock that's crystallizing in Hawaii, let's say, yesterday, and it produces these minerals. Each of the minerals has a different affinity for samarium and neodymium. They're different elements. Some minerals like samarium more, some minerals like neodymium more. On the other hand, the minerals don't care which isotope of neodymium goes into them. They'll take neodymium-143 or neodymium-144 or any other isotope of neodymium. They don't care. They're really not very finicky. So if I took that rock from Hawaii, I divided it into its constituent minerals, and I measured the samarium-neodymium ratio of those minerals and the neodymium isotopic composition of those minerals, I could plot it on this isochron diagram. So the, the lower axis is the parent isotope, samarium-147, ratioed to a stable neodymium isotope of 144. It's basically a proxy for the amount of samarium and neodymium in the mineral. At the time that the rock forms in Hawaii, all the rocks will have different, all the minerals have different samarium and neodymium ratios, but they'll have the same neodymium isotopic composition. That's represented by the vertical axis on that diagram. It's neodymium 143, which is the parent, Again, normalized to that same stable isotope of neodymium-144. Plagioclase doesn't care which isotope 
goes into it. So it has the same composition as the olivine and zopyroxene, so on, etc. So if I analyze that rock and it erupted today, it would lie in a flat line on that diagram. However, what happens is samarium starts to decay to neodymium. So we start losing samariums out of the minerals. And for every samarium we lose, guess what? We gain one neodymium. So as a result, these minerals start moving on this diagram depending on their age. So that originally flat line starts rotating as we lose a samarium and move back towards the origin and we gain a neodymium. So the slope of this line is proportional to the age. And basically, we can measure the slope of the line, divide it by the decay constant, which is basically the half-life of the system, and we can calculate an age. It's really that simple. This is algebra one kind of math, maybe even less, almost arithmetic. So fairly simple. But this is how we date things. So the next question is, is we want to date the moon. We want to test this model. What other materials do we date? So in the center of this diagram is an inset showing you what we think of the stratigraphy of the moon as it exists, or the geology of the moon as we think it exists today. So the first thing that should form in our magma ocean model that I presented earlier is that we expect this mantle material to form first. Almost contemporaneously with this, we expect the primary plagioclase-rich crust represented on the top and the number two to form. The next thing that should form should be this creep-rich material that contains all the junk that doesn't go into any of the minerals that crystallized previously. These three things should form almost contemporaneously with one another because we think the magma ocean cooled relatively quickly. You have a very hot body near absolute in space, which is near absolute zero. So cooling should be very quick. And then finally what should happen is we should put, uh, we should inject magmas of the secondary crust into this primary crust. So samples of these materials are represented in the Apollo collection. In the upper left here is a rock, it's a very famous rock, it's called 15555. It's from Apollo 15. Um, and it's Mare Basalt. This rock is a melt of that mantle material and so we can determine the isotopic systematics of it and its brethren from other locations, and we can determine the age of that mantle. The second rock on the left, down number two, is another fairly famous uh, Apollo rock from Apollo 16. It's, a, it's called a pharoan anorthosite, but basically what it is is it's some of that plagioclase-rich material that floated to the top of the magma ocean, represented by the white crystals on the, in the diagram in the middle. The bottom rock on the left is from Apollo 14. Turns out Apollo 14 rocks have most of the creep-rich material that's present on the moon. So there are some ways we can extract the age of creep by analyzing rocks like this. <clears throat> and then this rock over here, the Apollo 17 rock, uh, number four, it's of the lot. It's one of the, also one of the most famous. It's called the Troctolite. Troctolite is a place in Norway. Um, it's not from Norway. Um, but this rock represents some of this uh, crustal material that has been intruded into the primary crust. So by dating that, we apply a maximum age for the formation of, of the, ma or the minimum age for the formation of the magma ocean. 
So all these materials can be dated, and that's relevant for determining what the age of this, this body is. So the magma ocean model hypothesis makes this prediction that these materials should fall and yield ages with this general systematics. So that this slide on the right is a so-called Caltech diagram, which has a lower axis of something versus a vertical axis of nothing. But it represents the point at which various materials, the ages we predict from various materials. So the mantle material should be fairly ancient, should be the same age as the primary crust in blue. The creep-rich material should be the same age represented in green. The individual age determinations are going to have variable amounts of uncertainty associated with them. And as a result, individual ages should have some slop in them. But basically, we should get a continuous age from all these systems. And the general idea, at least as of 10 years ago, was the moon was very old, something like 4.5 billion years old. So we expect it to be old. The secondary crust, which is intruded into the primary crust, should be younger. And since this intrusion process is not limited by heat flow, we would expect to see a range of ages. This is the actual data that we have. The range of ages that we have are problematic for a variety of reasons. The mixed mantle rocks are obscenely young, and they don't agree with one another. The primary crust is both obscenely young by geologic standards, but also we have values that are as old as the solar system. In fact, some, that oldest point is actually older than the solar system. There's a problem. The, the creep-rich materials also show a range of ages. So when we look at these ages, we see no systematics. If you look at the secondary crust, it shows a range, which is fine, but it's also almost as old as the solar system. So we clearly have a problem here associated with either our model or the chronology. And the question is which? And so it's illustrated on this slide here. Which one of these is the problem? Have we measured the ages improperly? Or have we developed a model that's complete garbage? And so this is the question that we're trying to address. And Tom's going to show you how you can look at geologic and, and scientific problems when you have issues like this and how you can best test them. So I have uh, some student volunteers. If you could come on out, watch your step. There's some cables down there. So first of all, thank you very much for uh, coming out and helping me today. If you could just line up in front of the table here. So I've given each of you a little whiteboard and uh, a marker, and I'm going to ask you two questions, and I want you to write your answers to the questions on the whiteboard. So first, I would like you to write a number on the whiteboard that is w within five years of your current age. And then underneath that, I would like you to write your current grade in high school. And go ahead and hold these up for the audience and everybody to see. So just kind of going down the list, 13 years old uh, in 10th grade, that's a... Uh, you must be somewhat advanced. 13, 13 and you're a senior, you must be a prodigy, sir. I'm very, very impressed. Similarly, 11-year-old uh, in 11th grade, that's, I, I assume, therefore, you started uh, kindergarten while you were, uh, before you were born. Uh, 
21-year-old in, uh, in 12th grade and, and 19 and, and 9th grade. Good for you for, for sticking it out. Uh, so this, this data seems a little bit confusing to me, a little discrepant. You know, I, I, I've taught high school for 20 years. I, I thought I had a pretty good idea about, you know, how old is your typical sophomore, how old is your typical freshman and junior and senior, et cetera. So one of two things uh, is happening. Either I'm totally screwed up in the, the relationship that I think there is between uh, how old you are and what grade you are in, in high school, or there's something wrong with the data here and these ages are actually not correct. So this level of confusion, this kind of conundrum or puzzle is what uh, lunar uh, geologists and, and people who are dating moon rocks and trying to uh, make that jive with uh, accepted models of lunar formation. This is the level of, of, of conundrum and head-scratcher they were facing. So thank you very much. Yeah, that's, that's a perfect illustration of the problems that we've had in the last 50 years of trying to understand the chronolo chronologic data that I just showed you. Some people would argue that the ages are all perfect. And of course, if you're a scientist and you spent the last year of your life generating one of those ages, guess which category you fall into? My age is perfect. You know, I got it right. You guys, you're morons. You know, you've been sticking your fingers in the beakers and you've been making lots of mistakes. But then there's another way you can get out of that. You can say, well, you know, you thought you were dating... The, the age of the moon, but maybe the rock you dated really isn't a primordial formation product of the moon, and that the model that we have is completely wrong. So maybe Tom's model that he understands the age of somebody based on their grades is fallacious. Or maybe the ages are wrong because the kids chose ages that had no bearing on their, on their true ages. So what we started to do was look at the ages that have been generated. And so I wrote a paper about five years ago that basically reviewed all the ages that have been done up to that point. And this is a summary slide of one of the main conclusions of this. So again, same Caltech diagram, same four materials that were dated. But what I did was I went and I looked at rocks that have been dated, the same rocks that have been dated by different groups. And guess what? They didn't agree. So you give Bob a rock and Mary a rock and Sam a rock, and they all come up with different ages. And that's what's illustrated on this diagram. These pink, pink spots or pink data points all should yield the same age. They should be what we call concordant and agree, and they aren't. And so this gives us the hint that maybe it's not the model. Maybe it's that these ages aren't right. Having spent 22 years dating these rocks, I can tell you, it is a labor of love. It is extremely difficult to do this. When this was first began in 1970, with the technology of the day, it was almost an insurmountable challenge. So what we did was we got my group together, and... This, I, you know, just so you guys know, I had to put this thing down the left that says that they don't really look like that, but, you know, they do. <laughs> you know? 
So that's a portrait of, of Greg over on the right. That, that, he's in the audience somewhere, I'm sure. Anyway, we decided, we got together, we said, well, what can we do? Well, we've got 20 years of technological development. At the lab, we have the state-of-the-art chronology center that can go back and look at rocks and date them with a fidelity that could not have been even dreamed of in 1969. And so what I'm going to show you in the next few slides is the result of, of our work here. And I'm going to go through each of these components, one through four, and show you the ages that we have determined on them. And it'll show you, it paints a fairly concise picture for, for the age of the moon. So this is an isochron plot that's used to date the formation of the mantle. This is Samarium neodymium. It's very similar to the plot I just showed you. The data points are analyses of individual Mari basalts that we've done, Lawrence Livermore. Various types of rocks are represented here. Rocks from all over the moon are represented here. And in fact, every Mari basalt we've ever analyzed is represented on that plot. The slope of that line corresponds to an age of four or 4,331 million years, or in other words, 4.33 billion years. So we've also gone back and looked at that primordial plagioclase-rich crust. Very difficult material to date. It's seen impacts. It's been heated and cooled. It's been, had melts injected into it as a result of large basin-forming impacts. It's a tough thing. But we've managed to figure out ways to date this. If you look at the upper left, there's that sample I'd show you. I promised I'd show you again, 60025, taken from the Apollo 16 landing site. Below it is a sample 60016, which was taken nearby. Below that is a sample 62237, which we recently dated, like last year, uh, from Station 2. The isochrons are presented in cartoon form next to the diagrams. The point that I want you to note is the, the summary of the ages over on the right. So in other words, ignore the data, look at the words. The oldest sample we have is 4.37. The youngest we have is 4.30 billion years. We have another rock of 4.36 billion years. If you take the average of these three rocks, and these are all the three that we've dated, we get an age of 4.34 billion years. The age we got on the Mare Basalts was 4.33. Yay, we're seeing the same thing. So, could we be so lucky to see that another thing? So, we've gone on and we've dated the creep-rich material. That creep material has to be dated using a very different technique, and in the, in the interest of time and boredom, I'm not going to show you how that chronology is done, but suffice it to say that we've done it two times, the first age we got was 4.35 billion years. The second age we got was 4.39 billion years. So again, we're seeing that same age recorded in this last vestige of solidification of the magma ocean. We've also gone and looked at the age of the secondary crustal material. So like the previous slide, the insets represent pictures of the various rocks we've dated. The top one is from Apollo 15. 15445. The middle one is that very famous rock I told you about called the Troctolite, 76535, Apollo 17, Station 6. The lower one is from a, 
uh, a large boulder at Apollo uh, 17 at Station 8. And the ages we have obtained are 4.33, 4.31, and 4.33 billion years. So this yields an average age of about 4.32 billion years. So, in summary, we have an age for the mantle that we determined on that very first slide I showed you of 4.33 billion years. The average age we've determined, represented by uh, number one on this Caltech plot. Number two is the age of the anorthosites uh, that have an average age of 4.34 billion years. Number three is the age we've determined on the creep-rich material, which has an average age of about 4.37 billion years. And then the magnesium sweet rocks give an age of about 4.32 billion years. So by going back and looking at modern techniques, we've obtained a series of concordant ages, which are what's predicted from the origin evolution of the mod, uh, origin evolution model for the moon. And so we've seen an agreement between the geology that suggests how the moon formed and the chronology that suggests when it formed. So that's the takeaway message. That's the age of the moon. So if you have any forms to fill out, this should be a question that you have to answer, and that's the answer, okay? This has some very profound ramifications for the, the origin and evolution of the Earth-Moon system. It indicates that the Moon formed very, and the Earth formed very late in solar system history. So the impact that produced the Moon... Uh, and produce the Earth had to occur something like 250 million years after the beginning of the solar system. We think that planets form, based on analysis of meteorites, within the first couple million years. One of the people in my group dated the formation of Jupiter of two million years after the ignition of the Sun. So planets form very early, but the Earth and the Moon form really late. So we formed by a unique process in solar, by solar system standards. This is in, in the vernacular, this is called a stochastic process. And this is consistent with something strange happening, like a giant impact. So this demonstrates that the Earth and the Moon likely indeed formed from a giant impact. Because if we had an age that was as old as the solar system, there would really be no need other than the physical angular momentum requirements to generate the Earth-Moon system by that process. So with that, I am done. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.